what if there were a fountain of youth pill that could add decades to your life? Would you take it? Unlocking the Fountain is a podcast about the mysteries of aging and the scientific quest to slow, stop, or even reverse it. When do you think we're going to have the first 150-year-old? I think that person's already alive. Unlocking the Fountain. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Welcome to The Dose. This week, we're answering the question, how safe are my favorite summer activities given the current pandemic? Earlier this week, Dr. Lenora Saxinger joined me to talk about navigating everything from swimming to backyard barbecues and a day at the beach. She's an infectious diseases specialist and an associate professor of microbiology and immunology at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. And today, we have part two of that conversation, which will focus on spending time at the cottage, going to weddings and thinking about summer childcare plans, especially time indoors. Dr. Saxinger and I started by talking about something many of you are thinking about, a trip to the cottage. I think we're going to see some discussion around this going up because I know some province of, provinces have basically pulled up the drawbridges already and other ones are just saying only necessary travel. And so it becomes this really important question of how necessary it is to get to the cottage. And I think a lot of people would say it's pretty necessary um, and it it should be reasonable, but the things that I find myself considering when people ask my opinion on that question are, are people traveling across a gradient of risk? Because if either your cottage or you are in a higher risk area and you're traveling back and forth between them, you're putting the lower risk area at risk, if that mm. makes sense. Yes, it does. The, the idea to me is um, if you're in Toronto and, um, and there's still a lot of active transmission and you're traveling to your hideaway in a community that has had no cases, I'm a little concerned about that because I think there's a possibility you might be starting to equalize the risk. The more people that do that, the more the risk is going to kind of diffuse across the boundaries. And so on the other hand, if you're you know in, in Alberta and in Edmonton and your cottage is in the lake, is in a lake nearby and neither Edmonton nor the other community has much by way of community transmission right now, I think that that's a different scenario. And and the same thing goes for between province um, as well as between community travel is I think the necessity piece becomes a lot more important to say, is this really necessary if there's a risk that you're going to be um, you know, basically going across this risk gradient and maybe putting a lower risk place into a higher risk position. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, how necessary is the trip balanced with that? You might ask, you know, how willing are you to to put up with some with some rules about this if you really want to go there? So, for instance, could you imagine uh, rules saying that if you want to go to the cottage, you have to stay there for a month and uh, and you have to uh, self-isolate for for two weeks before before you can venture out and and start you know going to restaurants and buying food in the cottage area? I think that's a reasonable consideration. I think the idea of a period of, um, you know, not necessarily engaging in the community to make sure that you're not incubating infection is actually a pretty reasonable idea. And the other piece is, you know, you, you might be able to set yourself up such that you bring your provisions and you basically have your own little 
pod of, of cottage-based activities um, for, for a shorter trip as well. So, you know, if you basically bring along everything that you need and you stay in your space and you are very attentive to hand hygiene and distancing with any stops that you need to make, uh, I think that does make it more reasonable. What scares me is that people are so hungry for a return to normalcy that it's hard not to act normal. Like it's it's not an ingrained behavior, all these strange things we've been doing. And so once you start hitting the pattern of going out and about, it's not easy to remember to do all those things. And I think it's also crucial that we do. Strictly speaking, not super relevant, but interesting is I've been looking at some literature lately on modeling studies of what will happen um, with the epidemic. And of course, all models are wrong because they're trying to predict something. But a lot of them really look at the amount of contacts that people have. And so if everyone in the population keeps their contacts to basically 30% or less than their usual number of contacts, it really looks like we should probably be able to stay okay. Between 30 and 70%, it starts getting quite questionable. I've also seen other studies saying that if you keep your contacts to like four or less per day, um, that's very protective. And, and it made me realize I have no idea how many contacts I have in a day. And obviously in some some work settings that it doesn't even make sense to talk about such low numbers. But but that concept, I think, is something that people might really think about, um, whether they're in the cottage or at home is, is you know, how do we how do we really maximize and budget out our contact time so that we get the best benefit with the least risk? Um, when we talk about cottage, I think a lot of people assume that we're talking about going to your own cottage, but but not everybody does that. You know, people uh, uh, go to rental properties for short term, uh, you know, for very short term. Uh, is, is that a, is that a greater risk? I think it depends a little bit on the physical layout. And I think that, I mean, from what we know of the virus, it really is mostly a person-to-person thing, not a space-to-person thing. So um, with the exception of like those high-touch surfaces that we worry about. But I think rental spaces can be adequately cleaned. And when you can't come in, you could probably do an extra cleaning of high-touch surfaces if you're not sure. And before you leave, do the same thing. And as long as you can manage the space and, and have it, set up that you don't have to, you know, basically transgress physical distancing boundaries to provision yourself and everything. I I don't think I see a huge difference between those scenarios. Um, I think some provinces still might have some rules about rental spaces, though. I'm not 100% sure on that. But if it's allowed, I, I think it's possible to make it reasonable. Um, this next question, I, I have a feeling I already know the answer. If I've been listening to you carefully, you know, to in the argument of cottage versus uh, a hotel or resort, um, are either of them riskier? Um, I guess I'm, I'm thinking about there. There would be some, you know, hotel type scenarios. It's like living in an apartment where there's some unavoidable communal space that you have to go through Ah. to get to your private space, right? So I I think if I was given a choice, I would pick a freestanding kind of situation for a rental rather than a communal space that you have to get through to get to your your space. But again, you know, I, I think that there are a lot of businesses that are really, really wanting to do the right thing and be able to function somewhat. And so I think there'd be pretty good buy-in to try to maximize the safety of those spaces. And I think there will also be a fair amount of follow-up if, if we think there's transmission related to certain situations like that, that it would potentially result in changing the rules. 
you wouldn't want to be the first one to figure out that there's some fatal flaw in the idea of, of going to a hotel or type resort. But I think the, the weight of the evidence such as it is and our understanding right now is that it, it probably can be made reasonable um, if everyone really looks at what public health is, is putting forth as guidelines and really tries to adhere to it. Um, now, um, pitching a tent, is, is that the safest thing to do? I think tents are probably fine. I mean, you can put your tent away from other people as long as the person with you is part of your bubble. If you're sharing a tent from uh, someone from a different bubble, household bubble, um, there is pretty significant shared airspace in close quarters in a tent. But if it's a household-based expedition, I, I don't think I perceive any particular excess risk. And and I think a lot of campsites, you can you can actually, you know, wave in a friendly fashion when you're picking up your wood or water or whatever, but you can distance pretty effectively. So I would be optimistic that camping should be on the table, but you have to think about who, how many, how many households you're mixing and uh, in what kind of proximity, I guess. Um, we know that overnight camps are largely canceled, but some day camps may be opening depending on the province. The camp assures you they'll practice physical distancing. What else should parents insist on? <laughs> you know, the age range of the kids in the camps um, probably will impact how much they can really do the physical distancing. But I think if there's a commitment to hand hygiene and to really small numbers, again, it depends on the setting that you're in. It's probably okay. If the kid came from a household where there's people at risk, I would probably rethink um, again, whether or not I'd want them to go to a day camp activity, because by definition, you're combining a whole bunch of households right there again. And, um, and so there's a lot of things you can't control for that. So uh, I, I think that I have kind of like a, a gradient in my head as to the risk of that. And it really depends on where you are and how big the group is. And then beyond that, of course, the distancing and hand hygiene is going to help somewhat. But there's a lot of discussion around how much kids might transmit infection, and it seems like, in general, they don't get as ill. And so we, we really haven't got a great handle on that yet. And so we might learn more um, over the next while, but that won't help the planning for immediate summer camps, unfortunately. Let's go even younger. You know, Some of us plan on staying home and just want to get back to work. Yeah. So what questions uh, should we be asking people who are providing childcare? I think that most of the public health um, units have been giving guidance about maximum occupancy and reducing this, the number of kids per room and not having the rooms mix um, so kids get some interactivity. But in a lot of spaces, it used to be kids would interact across the whole spectrum of everyone under care, and now that that's not going to happen anymore. Um, and I think that that's actually potentially important. It's the same reason as the summer camp idea of how many households you're combining. Um, but at the same time, it, it's kind of not sustainable to not have childcare yeah. um, for for huge stretches of time. So I think it's something that will just have to be monitored really carefully. Summer often means weddings and, uh, you know, big blessed events. And I'm thinking now, if you get an invitation... What are you looking for? I, I think the first thing that comes to my mind is how big a gathering is it going to be? Do we have a right to ask? Yes, I think you do. And and to be honest, I think a lot of people planning weddings are probably kind of sorting through all available guidance very carefully. But it, it's clear that gatherings of more than 50 people um, are a bad idea. And the smaller, the better. 
again, in terms of just the number of potential households mixed if there's a spreading event. The way that people interact at the event and at the venues and how the food is served, like if it's pre-plated versus buffet, I would say a big no to buffets right now. Um, and, you know, the receiving line, I'm sorry. <laughs> receiving line seems like a stellarly terrible idea. So there's a lot of things that would be, you know, expected in a wedding that people are going to have to be a little more creative about. Um, but that doesn't mean that you can't have a group of your um, close friends and family come together for you. But I do think that there's a number of steps in the wedding planning that you really have to look at how close to people get, how much contact is there, and how you can, might be able to minimize that. And, and as a guest, I think that it would be reasonable to ask some of those questions if you don't see the answer. Um, I'm afraid to ask this question, but, but I have to. I'm a downer, to. I think. I, you know, I so, know. so what about getting, uh, getting onto the dance floor at a wedding? I genuinely not thought about that before. You know, if, if, if I were planning a wedding right now, and of course I'm an infectious diseases doctor, so, you know. <laughs> so you're not going to be a that. wedding planner. Yeah, but um, if I was planning a wedding right now, I think I would look at dance floor limits. I would be suggesting that close dancing only occur within a household bubble um, and that uh, you might have to have your DJ person reminding people to distance. <laughs> oh, and singing along. Singing is actually really yeah. highlighted as a potential risk activity, right? So um, you'd want to be like, don't sing along. Sorry. You might have to play more sedate music, honestly, to prevent that kind of activity at a wedding. So, so you're killing the me. safest you're, thing. You are just, I know. Lenora, you're killing me. How would you feel? There was a report from Jordan where um, the father of the bride infected 75 wedding guests at oh a 300 God. person wedding. So how would you feel if that was your wedding? No, you'd feel terrible because we're, the, we're laughing, but somebody might end up in the ICU. Exactly. So, I mean, I think the the underpinning of all my depressing answers is the what if, and if there's steps that you can take where you can get some of the benefits of being together, but you reduce the risk, um, especially for vulnerable people. I think it's important. If you're playing the odds, playing the odds for yourself is one thing, playing the odds for people at risk. Um, and, you know, even people in the households of the people who are gathered that you don't even know about is is a different story, right? Queer life in Montreal was wild. Montreal in the 90s was a great time, but it had a dark side. It was not a safe city for gay people back then. But what else was behind a series of deaths in the city? Somebody's killing gay men. We want to know why. I'm Francis Pourde, and this is The Village, The Montreal Murders. Get early access to episodes at cbc.ca slash listen or by subscribing to the CBC True Crime Premium channel on Apple Podcasts. I think it's fair to say that as it gets very hot, you know, malls and libraries are going to be pretty essential to cooling off, uh, uh, especially when it gets uh, hot outside. So what's the risk of COVID in places like that? I think that there's lots of evidence that there have been large super spreading type events related to public buildings. Um, but I think some of the things that we've learned will help. So I know a lot of public health authorities are putting out guidance for public buildings on their um, HVAC systems and trying to make sure that they're optimized to reduce the risk of transmitting infection inside buildings. And that becomes a weirdly boring topic, but you know, you can try to maximize the outside air exchanges and things like that. That might help some. 
um, and humidity actually also helps some. So there's some things that can be done to reduce risk in the buildings. And then I, I think that there's a lot of attention being given how to configure the use of buildings so that there's adequate space and hygiene. And so it will it would be a different experience than it ordinarily would be, especially, you know, in the library setting when people go to use the computers, et cetera, et cetera. If libraries are open, I think they'll look different and things will be spaced differently to minimize risk. Um, malls have a fair amount of airspace. I'm trying to think if I've seen a mall-based outbreak. Um, if people aren't packed in too tightly together, um, as long as all those other things are, are handled well, it's probably reasonable. And as you point out, for some people, that's a major point of respite on a really, really hot day. And, and you'd hate to limit it without some suggestion that is really necessary to limit it. So I, I think the first principles work as well in those settings of distancing and, and um, the, physical, the physical space use. We had one listener ask, you know, my gym may be opening soon, and although I'd love to go back, I'm not sure if returning to the gym is a good idea versus exercising outdoors. What are your thoughts? There have been outbreaks related to gyms, um, for sure. And uh, I think that there's some things gyms can do to reduce risk in the gym setting. And, and again, we don't know how much each of these elements contributes to reducing risk, but, you know, limiting occupancy, really, really, uh, you know, high-end attentive hygiene of all the equipment and and physical distancing in the gym setting, those things should all help. At the end of the day, though, I think that working out in a gym will always be higher risk than working out at home. Um, so it kind of depends a little bit also to me on your community transmission risk. Because if you're in a community that really has not been having a lot of cases and your gym is following all of the measures, it's probably reasonable. And unfortunately, no one is ever going to be at a zero risk game. Like we we didn't have that many cases here, but certainly I saw people in hospital when you go over their history, they were able to say that they were doing all of the recommended things and they still got infection. And that's that's probably not their fault. They just got the short straw. So it's just you know, how much risk can you tolerate and looking at the, the place that you are as well as the, the, you know, place, space that you're going into. And in a lot of places in the country, I think going to the gym with the public health recommendations being carried out is probably fine. If you're in a community that still has problems and is trying to deal with a lot of cases that are continuing, then I would potentially really look at the home workout more honestly. That was the second part of my conversation with Dr. Lenora Saxinger, an infectious diseases specialist and associate professor of microbiology and immunology at the University of Alberta. And here's your dose of smart advice on staying safe from COVID-19 during the summer. Cottages and hotels and resorts are both fairly safe from the coronavirus, provided they're diligent about washing hands and wiping down surfaces. One thing that's riskier about hotels and resorts is that they tend to have larger common areas where guests congregate. That can spread the virus. Summer is a time for nuptials, and I think weddings are about to undergo a huge shift if they want to stay one step ahead of COVID-19. That means goodbye to buffet and sweet tables as well as receiving lines. It means the invite list caps out at 50 guests. Sad to say, but having 100 guests or more cutting a rug on the dance floor is yet another no-no. If you like what you heard today, our regular episode of The Dose this week has Dr. Lenora Saxinger giving tips on keeping safe from the coronavirus at summer's great outdoor pastimes. Next week on The Dose, we're going to answer the question, is my race a risk factor in the age of COVID-19? 
If you have any other topics you'd like us to cover, tweet me at NightShiftMD or at CBC White Coat using the hashtag TheDoseCBC. You can also email us. Our address is thedose at cbc.ca. You can find The Dose wherever you get your podcasts. The Dose was produced this week by Nicole Ireland, Donna Dingwall, and me with digital support from Fabiola Carletti and Brandy Wikely. Shout out to Alison Broddle, managing editor at CBC Radio, Arif Narani, the executive producer of CBC Podcasts, and Leslie Merklinger, CBC's director of audio innovation. The Dose wants you to be better informed about your health. And if you're looking for medical advice, see your healthcare provider. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Until your next dose. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.